Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. I'm your host, Luke Prague. Today I've got for you a great interview with ethical philosopher Alonzo Fife. And I'll tell you right now, this might end up being my favorite interview from all of 2009. Since I conducted this interview, Alonzo's clear and well-argued ideas have completely transformed the way I look at morality. So without further ado, here's the interview. Alonzo Fife is a blogger at atheistethicist.blogspot.com, and today we're going to talk about his book, A Better Place, Selected Essays on Desire Utilitarianism. Alonzo, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Um, before we start talking about ethics, I'd like to know, what's your personal faith journey been like? Were you always an atheist? Um, pretty much. I might have believed in God back when I was six or seven and believed in Santa Claus and Easter Bunny, but uh, for the most part, I've been an atheist all my life. <laughs> my uh, my father was an atheist. Okay. And pretty much picked it up from him. Well, that helped. I think it was... Um, Francis Crick, who said that the, the greatest gift ever given to him was that his father didn't believe in God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I consider it to be a benefit. Yeah, it helped. Um, now, about your book, maybe we can start with a sketch of the ethical framework that might be available to a person, because um, many people aren't even aware of what you could do with ethics if you don't follow a divine fiat type of theory, um, God, whatever God says is good is good. Um, and then where does utilitarianism or desire utilitarianism fit into the mix? Well, okay. Uh, the first part, as far as different types of ethical theories goes, um, when I uh, got interested in ethics, I studied moral philosophy. And one of the things that I was uh, quite intrigued by is the fact that for the past 400 years, Professional moral philosophers have been doing ethics pretty much without God. Some moral philosophers have believed in God, but they haven't thought that one could reliably get ethics from a divine command type of theory. And that actually goes back to to Socrates, who asked the question, um, is X good because it is loved by God, or is X loved by God because it is good? If X is is good because it is loved by God, that means anything any atrocity can be good, all that's required is for God to love it. Mm-hmm. So from that uh, from that early rejection of any type of divine, uh, divine command ethics, most uh, moral philosophers these days um, aim for developing some type of secular morality. It's just you know, quite different from what you get out on the street. A lot of people think that you can't get morality without God, and yet most uh, professionals in the field think that you can't get morality from God. Yes, very interesting dichotomy. Anyway, so um, they've been working on different theories. Of course, the two main branches of theories are consequentialist theories. Something is right or wrong depending on its consequences, whether its consequences are good or bad. And then there are deontological theories. Some things are inherently or intrinsically good or bad, right or wrong. I don't think I think intrinsic values are as suspicious uh their existence is is as problematic as the existence of a god. So I go for a, a consequentialist uh or utilitarian theory in my ethics. Hmm. Now for the deontological theories, um do you just avoid them or reject them because 
you don't see any reason to think that values um, exist in like a material way, or what's what's your reasoning there? Well, the thing is, I, I do believe that values exist. Values are, are very real. That is, put your hand on a burning hot stove and then tell me that value isn't a, a real entity in the universe. Um, what I deny is the exist- existence of some type of intrinsic value. I take value to be a relational property, not an intrinsic property. Um, and by relational property, it's something like distance. Uh, the distance from one thing to another uh, is not an intrinsic property of either object. It's a relationship between them. The sun is 93 million miles from the Earth. It could be 100 million miles away. It could be right next door. Um, be a bit uncomfortable, but it's a, a theoretical possibility. Um, but you can't uh, you can't know distance from the property of distance from simply by looking at one object. You have to look at the relationship between them. And I take value to be a relational property, a relationship between desires and states of affairs. And specifically, a state of affair is good insofar as that which a person desires is true in that state of affairs. You can't look just at state of affairs and, and determine if they're good or bad. You can't look just at desires and determine value. You have to look at the relationship between desires and states of affairs. Hmm. So I, I do think values are very much real, but they're not an intrinsic property. And so any theory of ethics that treats right and wrong as an intrinsic property and not as a relationship between actions and desires is, um, well, it's got a false premise in there. Right. Um, Now, before we get directly into theories of desire utilitarianism, I wonder if you might explain that um, five-theory breakdown of ethics, because uh, when I when I saw that, uh, I really liked it. It was very simple and very clear. The God likes, I like, we like, good for me, good for us. What mm-hmm. is that? Uh, well, that was actually something that came up in a debate I was having on the, on the nature of ethics. And one of the things that people tended to claim is that uh, if you can't have objective or intrinsic value type of ethics or type of value, then the only thing that you have left is I like. That is, what your own likes and dislikes determine everything that has value, which means if you happen to um, like slavery, then slavery would be good, or at least good for you. And what I thought with that distinction is to point out that quite obviously I like isn't the only option that exists. That in addition to talking about relationships between objects, or states of affairs, and my desires, I can talk about relationships between objects or states of affairs and your desires, which is the you-like version of it. And if I like phrases are true or false, then you-like phrases are also true or false. Now, in addition to what we like, there is also the option of what is good for us. um, Good for me, good for you, good for us. Um, for example, exercise. Ex- exercise is a good example, something that a lot of people don't like. Some people can learn to like it, but most of us don't like to exercise, but it is good for us. And that shows that the I like theory of value or conception of value is a bit um, lacking. It can't cover good for us types of value. Good for us types of value isn't things aren't things that we like, but they are things that bring about other states that we like. And just there's good for us, 
uh, good for me, good for you, and good for us. Um, and the, the main purpose of that is, is just to, to bring out the, the, the disprove the idea that if you don't have intrinsic values, you're stuck with talking about simply um, what the individual likes or dislikes. There's a lot mm-hmm. of other options available. Yeah, and I can see the relation to um, your illustration with the distance between the sun and the earth, like the, let's say, the good for me would maybe be showing the distance between the sun and the earth, but there's the distance between the sun and the moon, the distance between the moon and the earth, the distance between the sun and Saturn. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many different uh, possibilities there. Right, and another thing to notice is that uh, relational properties like distance, there's a right or wrong answer, simply because you think that the answer is a, a certain distance. You could be wrong. So if you thought that the sun was 10,000 miles away, that would be a, a factual error. The same thing is true about things that are good for us. Um, you can't pick that up just off the top of your head. You might think that this glass containing this clear, colorless, odorless liquid is water and that it's good for you, but it could contain a poison and then not be good for you. You can make mistakes. So there's a right and wrong answer. And if there's a right or wrong answer, there's a reason for discussion and debate. And um, all of the things that go into actually doing ethics. Hmm. That sounds like you're kind of leading into a another subject that you've talked about before, which is how the words objective and subjective, as used by people who talk about morality, is those words are kind of used in a strange and confusing way, and it would, might be more helpful if we use those words like scientists do. Um, would you talk about that for a moment? Right. Ethicists, or, or people who talk about ethics, not, not ethicists, but in lay discussions about ethics, mm-hmm. you get a distinction between um, objective value and subjective value, as if these are mutually exclusive categories, jointly exhaustive. That means you either, something is either in the objective category, um, where divine command theories are, are set to lie, or they're in the... Con- subjective error area, which is the personal preferences area. And that's not uh, that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of different options. Um, on the objective um, on the objective side, if you listen to a subjectivist argue, the subjectivist will say, you can't prove intrinsic values exist. Therefore values are not objective, so subjectivism must be true. You have eliminated the other possibility. But there are a lot of objective properties that are not intrinsic properties, and one of them I gave earlier was distance from. It's not, it's, there's an objective right or wrong answer, but it's not an intrinsic property. So the fact that you can't tell me, or you can't defend an intrinsic distance from, doesn't mean that distance from properties are subjective. It means that it's not intrinsic, it's a relational object, objective property. Now, relativism, moral relativism, is typically cast in the subjective category, even though relational properties are fully objective in much of science. In fact, it may be the case that all of science deals with relational properties. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing, uh, a similar type of thing occurs on the subjectivist side. The objectivists say that it doesn't make any sense for, for values to be subjective and that what you like is good and what you don't like is is evil because different people have different views. And if that's 
all that value required, then no matter what you liked, it would be uh, it would be good. If you liked to torture young children for pleasure, then that would be good. That type of absurdity is used as an argument against um, uh, subjective values. Now, the problem there is that subjective states or mental states are still real. They're still part of the universe that exists. Mm-hmm. So I, I talk about beliefs and desires. Desires exist as part of the real world. They explain real-world phenomena such as intentional actions. You go to work because you want to make enough money to eat and pay, pay your rent. You're explaining real-world events by reference to these mental states, which means you can talk about them scientifically. So what we call subjective really is a scientifically understandable and explainable phenomenon and can be talked about objectively in the same terms of science. So this idea that we have this distinction between objective intrinsic values and subjective uh, non-scientific values is a false distinction. There, There is objectivity in what is subjective in mental states and uh, there is or, or at least there are relation, relational elements in on the objective side, not everything on the objective side is intrinsic. Hmm. So if we recognize that distinction, we get rid of a lot of phony debates about the nature of morality. Yeah, well, I think you've got your work cut out for you because that's, so, that's such a shift from the way most of us think and talk about ethical theories that um, it would be kind of hard to you know make that shift, I think even for myself, um, in discussing ethics in a different and clearer way. Yeah, I, I agree. It's part of our cultural norm that is pretty much assumed. Um, when we speak, we, we speak in terms of, of that particular distinction, but scientists don't speak in terms of that distinction. Mm-hmm. And I don't actually think it's, it's my work to, that, uh, that I need to do here. What I've been, what I've asked uh, scientists to do something every once in a while if they can is to talk to the ethicists and say, hey, you've got this concept of objectivity and subjectivity all wrong. That's not the way the universe is. And it's, I don't know, scientists can, can teach the rest of us um, to understand the differences between subjectivity and objectivity better or actually the, the similarities between objectivity and subjectivity better, then I think we can make some moral, some progress in moral concepts and moral debate. Hmm. Now, moving on to desire utilitarianism, uh, what type of theory is desire utilitarianism, or what does it tell us about ethics? Okay, one of the ways of categorizing moral theories has to do with the order between what is right and what is good. Um, one set of theories starts with what is right. Um, for example, murder is wrong, um, rape is wrong, etc. And then what is good is whatever it, whatever right actions produce is good. The other theory starts with a concept of the good and then evaluates rightness according to that. Rightness is what maximizes the good. Desire utilitarian is the second type of theory. It starts with a theory of the good, and then from that derives a theory of what's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, the theory of the good in desire utilitarianism is, as I said, relationships between states of affairs and desires. That's what value is. A value is a relationship between a state of affairs and one or more desires. Um, specifically, 
desires are known um, as propositional attitudes. They're attitudes towards a proposition or a sentence. Um, so I desire that um, I'm eating chocolate ice cream. That means I have a mental state that I wish to realize a state of affairs in which the phrase, I am eating chocolate ice cream, is true. Mm-hmm. Desires and beliefs are another form of um, propositional attitude. The difference between beliefs and desires is that a belief records how one thinks the universe actually is. So if I believe there is a dragon outside of my house, then I have a mental state that in which I act as if the proposition there was a dragon outside of my house is true. Now, it may or may not be true, but if I believe that, then I act as if it were true. Now, I understand what the, um, the ethical implications are for your chocolate example, but what do beliefs have to do with ethics? Like, if I believe that there's a dragon outside my window, and so I'm... Um, gathering all the water in the house that I can or running around screaming or, you know, running out the back door or whatever. I don't see what that has to do with ethics. That's just I'm acting because I have a belief about the world. Uh, well, you can't act merely on a belief. Um, and beliefs are, are motivationally inert. They don't tell you what to do. I mean, the, the phrase that there's a dragon outside of your house is quite compatible with actually going outside and saying hi to the dragon. There, there, there's no implications about what you ought or ought not do based on beliefs alone. Desires, on the other hand, are motivationally potent. Desires are what give you a reason to do something or refrain from doing something. So if you believe there's a dragon out of, outside your front door who will fry you if you walk outside your front door and you have an aversion to being fried, then you have a reason not to go outside your front door. Now, in saying that beliefs have little to do with ethics, that's actually something that a lot of people would uh, would disagree with. They think that morality is concerned with nothing but what you believe. What you believe is, is right and wrong. Um, so, when with desire utilitarianism, it takes all the beliefs out of there and puts them in the category of morally inert. They're just records of how the universe is, their data. And it's desires that determine all value. All value is relationship between states of affairs and desires. Nothing to do with what a person believes. So if a person says that something is right because I believe it, if they if their justification has to do with their beliefs, um, no. Beliefs don't justify or motivate anything. The beliefs are, are motivationally neutral. Right, they just provide the framework within which desires can um, create the possibilities for good and action. Right. Just um, I mentioned earlier, you can't act on a belief alone. You need a desire or a reason to act in a particular way. You also can't act on a desire alone. I might have a desire not to be not to be fried, but unless I have beliefs about what would cause me to be fried, then that desire it's also simply uh, doesn't tell me how to act. It doesn't it doesn't recommend any course of action to me. It says that given a certain beliefs, set of beliefs, you should choose an action which will prevent you from being fried, but you still need some beliefs in there in order to uh, in order to decide what to do. Mm. Yeah, and of course maybe an easy way to see this is that 
um, my belief that the physical world actually exists and is not an illusion inside my brain, um, that's obviously a belief, but that can't possibly by itself motivate me to do anything. I mean, I have a world of possibilities before me, um, Mm -hmm. even with that belief. Right, and even if you reject the belief that the world is physical and that it's imaginary, that still doesn't tell you anything about what to do. Now, you said earlier that uh, desire utilitarianism is a theory of the good, basically, and that it seeks to find out what is good and then whatever actions bring about that good are, by definition, what is morally right. So how does desire utilitarianism find out what is good? For example, in your example with the chocolate, is eating chocolate morally good because you desire to be eating chocolate? Okay. Um, we're going to have to get into another fine distinction here. The, dis- uh, the relationship between states of affairs and desires defines the good, but there's a lots of different concepts of good. Mm-hmm. Morally good is a subcategory of the good, which means that morally concerned is also concerned with states of, affa- of affairs and desires, but with a certain subset of states of affairs and desires. Mm-hmm. And here it's, it's um, perhaps useful to think in biological terms between uh, a genus and species. So, for example, we have primates, and man is a type of primate. In ethics, we have the good relationship between states of affairs and desires, and moral good, a certain type of relationship between states of affairs and desires. And what would be another type of good besides moral good? Like, what are the chimpanzees and the orangutans? Um, one, one, one possible form of good is usefulness. And you can see that usefulness isn't necessarily tied to moral good. If you were to rob a liquor store, it would be useful to wear a ski mask because a ski mask will prevent you from being identified and thus arrested for robbing the liquor store unless something else goes wrong. So, But the fact that it's useful doesn't mean that it's morally good. Mm-hmm. In order to get to moral, moral goodness or evaluate moral goodness, we have to look at a specific subset of these relationship between states of affairs and desires. And the specific relationship that I have in mind, um, and this is this is where things can get confusing, a desire itself, or, or desires are malleable. That is, the desires that we have are not fixed by genetics or nature or anything. We can affect the desires that we have and the desires that other people have. And desires, because they cause action, desires are are means. They're, they are a way of changing things in the universe. So if I can change what other people desire, I can change how they behave. Mm-hmm. So if, if I give everybody an aversion to harming children, then my children are safer. And if I have a desire that my children be safe, then I have a reason to give other people an aversion to harming children. And they have a reason to give me an aversion to harming children. Hmm. Now, that's where I, I argue that morality is concerned with. Morality is concerned with the value of desires themselves. And desires, the value of a desire, is term, determined by the relationship between a desire and other desires. Desires that help to fulfill other desires are good. Desires that tend to thwart other desires are bad. And ethics is concerned with promoting, to whatever degree we can, good desires, desires that tend to fulfill other desires, 
and inhibiting or reducing the incidence of bad desires, desires that tend to support other desires. I see. So now we finally come to the point where we're able to find out what might be good and what might might be not so good. Um, for example, the desire of um, uh, terrorists to fly planes into buildings uh, is not a very great, a very morally good desire because it thwarts so many other desires to live and go to work and eat chocolate. Mm -hmm. um, is that where we're heading? Pretty much. We, we have a good reason to give people an aversion to mass killing, partially because us and the people we care about are going to be amongst those who, who are at risk of being killed. Um, they have, other people have a reason to cause in us an aversion to mass killing. And this general view, or this, this uh, all of these reasons that exist to create an aversion to mass killing is tied up in the moral practice of condemning mass killings. So now, under desire utilitarianism, uh, is the ideal world one that is heading towards unified desire, uh, that we would all want the same thing? Well, actually, giving everybody the same desires isn't necessarily a good thing. So, for example, when it comes to eating chicken, I like dark meat. My wife prefers white meat. So when we have a chicken, I get the dark meat, she gets the white meat. If my wife and I had the same desires, we would then, one of us would have to settle for something less than what we wanted. Uh-huh. So, um... We're not always going for the same desires. Now, there are some desires that are good if everybody had them, um, or some desires that would be good if nobody had them, such as, for example, the desire to rape. What would be the cost if nobody wanted to rape? You would have no victims of rape suffering the thwartings of their desires, and you would have nobody with a desire to rape whose desires are being thwarted by those who are preventing rape. So there's a case of a desire which, for um, all practical purposes, should be zero. We have reason to make that desire zero. But not all desires fit into that, that type of category. There are some desires that we have a reason to have some people have, but not others. It's better to have some people who want to be teachers and some people who want to be firemen. Mm -hmm. And there's some desires that we have reason to want everybody to, be, to have, such as the... Um, desire to help others who are in distress. If everybody had that desire, then all of us would have somebody that we could depend on if we were happened to be the person who was in stress, in distress. If everybody had that desire, our desires when we're under in distress are more likely to be fulfilled, and their desire to help somebody in distress can be fulfilled. Now, it seems like um, the way you've... Uh spoken about it today, desire utilitarianism provides a pretty nice and coherent framework of what is good and what we should be doing, um, but perhaps other frameworks and other ideas that have been proposed also offer a coherent framework of what is morally good and bad. Um, why choose desire utilitarianism? Well, I'll rephrase the question a little bit. Why reject other theories? Okay. Um, I reject other theories because almost all of the theories have have one of several different types of problems with it. 
One of the main problems with other types of theories is that they require on some they require that something have intrinsic value. Um, and like I said, intrinsic value does not exist. Um, there is no evidence that you can give me that you, you pick something and say this is intrinsically valuable and this ought to be maximized. What evidence do you have that that's intrinsically valuable? Mm-hmm. It's a non-existent entity. You're starting from a false premise. The same thing is true about divine command theories of, of ethics. God commanded us to do X. Well, your statement, God commanded us, is false, so I reject your ethics. That doesn't mean your conclusion is false. It's a principle of logic that you can have a bad argument with a true conclusion. Yeah. I can believe that an airplane is going to, to crash tonight because I looked at my tea leaves, and my tea leaves showed me that an airplane will crash. I've got bad reasons for believing that the plane will crash, but that doesn't mean the plane will not crash. The plane could still crash. Yeah. Similarly, people can have bad reasons for holding on to a particular uh, moral belief because God commanded it, for example. The fact that their reasons are bad doesn't mean that their conclusion the fact that they hold that something is wrong is false. It could still be. It could still be wrong. Mm-hmm. The reasons just are, are just terrible. Mm-hmm. So the reason I reject other forms of ethics, one of the main reasons uh, is that give me another theory of ethics. If it has an intrinsic value assumption in it somewhere, then you need to give me evidence that that is true. And I don't think that there is any such thing as intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. Relationship between states of affairs and desires exist. It would uh, it would be pretty hard to deny relationships between states of affairs and desires. And the relationships that I discussed between desires and other desires, that there are desires that tend to fulfill other desires, desires that tend to thwart other desires. Um, again, that's going to be pretty hard to, de- to deny the existence of such things. Um, so that's re- that's my main reason for rejecting for accepting desire utilitarianism and rejecting all the others. Now there I suppose are other ethical theories that compete with desire utilitarianism which do not depend on the false premise of values that are intrinsic to the universe. My, my first response to that would be to name one. Well, um, wouldn't that be true of other forms of utilitarianism? Now, other forms of utilitarianism actually do depend on some type of intrinsic value, such as, let's uh, take, for example, the, the uh, one of the original forms of um, utilitarianism, um, which is uh, Jeremy Bentham's pleasure utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. Pleasure in the absence of pain is the only good. What makes it good? Now, either it's good because it is the object of a desire, in which case you get, you get right back into desire utilitarianism, mm-hmm. Or it's good because it has some type of intrinsic value, and that makes an intrinsic value theory, um, which then I would reject. Now, I also reject the idea that desire, that pleasure is the only thing that is desired, but even if that statement were true, that would still be, it would still be compatible with desire utilitarianism. So there wouldn't be a different type of theory. It would just be a, a desire utilitarian theory that says pleasure is the only thing desired. Um, so that does actually turn out to be a type of uh, um, intrinsic value theory. Or it's just a, a restatement of desire utilitarianism. Now, there actually is a, a group of theories that don't rely on intrinsic value, and yet they are 
uh, in competition with these are utilitarianism, and that is strict subjectivist theories. Theories where uh, right or wrong depends on the individual, the individual's own views. So if you believe slavery is wrong, then slavery is wrong for you. And if I believe that slavery is permissible, then slavery is permissible for me. Those types of theories don't depend on intrinsic value. In fact, they argue against intrinsic value. That's one of the reasons why slavery can be good for you and bad for me, because slavery doesn't have um, an intrinsic value property in it. Um, now, the reason I reject strict subjectivism is mostly because the world is more complex than that. All these other things that I talk about in Desire Utilitarianism, they do exist, and the subjectivist doesn't have any reason to exclude talking about them. Mm-hmm. So this, um, you, a person can have a belief that slavery is wrong, but that doesn't change the relationships that exist between a state of affairs in which there is slavery and desires. That is, it doesn't change the relationships that are true between a state of affairs with slavery and the reasons for action that exist. The relationships between states of affairs and your desires are just as true. Everything the subjectivist says is true, but what the the subjectivist is incomplete. Mm -hmm. There are these other types of relationships that are out there that they ignore that are still real. And that's the relationship between your desires and the desires of other people. Now, I hadn't come across the phrase desire utilitarianism before, um, but it sounds like a very, very compelling ethical theory. Um, How popular is desire utilitarianism in the philosophical community? Well, I have to say that I invented the term. (laughs) Well, congratulations. uh, Hopefully you'll you'll be remembered for a long time for it. Uh, maybe, maybe not. This, this was, uh, I went to graduate school to study moral philosophy. And this is the view that I ultimately ended up with, uh, these are utilitarianism. But the only place I've presented it is on, uh, talk shows like this, podcasts, and on my blog and a few internet debates here and there. So it hasn't had much of an opportunity to, uh, to get spread around. Um, I hope that it has value, but I am more than willing to admit that being a mere mortal, that I can make mistakes. And I'm, I, I'm always real nervous about that because I'm, one of the things that I say repeatedly in my blog and in my book is that I guarantee that at least one of the things that I've said is false. Mm-hmm. I don't know which one it is, and it's almost certainly more than one, but I need other people to find out what they are and to tell me what they are. Yes, that's the value of criticism. Absolutely. Right. So I put this, I put the ideas out there. I let people read them. They come back with their criticisms. I see if I, I can answer it or if I can't. I have been forced to change my mind a few times <laughs> yeah. by the by the strength of arguments. Um, now I did it. come across something uh, that's very popular called preference utilitarianism. Um, Peter Singer in Australia being the most popular proponent of that is that. Mm-hmm the same thing or very similar? Um, one of the problems with preference utilitarianism is I've never seen it worked out as an as actual theory of ethics. That is, um, I've been trying to find a preference utilitarian who will tell me what a preference is. I, mean, I can tell you what a desire is. A desire is a propositional attitude, a brain state that relates the individual to a state of affairs, a person who desires that X, who desires X. It has a reason to create a state of affairs in which X is true. 
But what is a preference? And until somebody tells me what a preference is, and a preference turns out to be something other than a desire, then it's difficult to evaluate preference utilitarianism. Now, another thing about preference utilitarianism, from what I can tell by its proponents, and again, without a, a, a strict definition worked out somewhere, which I haven't found, I could be wrong about this, but they seem to speak as if preference satisfaction is, has intrinsic value. That is, we're supposed to maximize preference satisfaction. Preference satisfaction is an entity like pleasure, like happiness, to be maximized. And the right act is the act that maximizes preference satisfaction in all instances. Now, desire utilitarianism is not an, a, a version of act utilitarianism. It does not say the right act is the act that maximizes desire fulfillment. So that, if my interpretation of preference utilitarianism is correct, that would be a major difference between the two. Preference utilitarianism is an act utilitarian theory that focuses on maximizing preference satisfaction. Desire utilitarianism is not an act utilitarian theory. It looks at evaluating desires themselves, not actions. Now, have you had your work read or critiqued by any major philosophers yet? And if so, what have they had to say? Well, I have had somebody who showed my work around to a few philosophers, such as uh, J.J.C. Smart, who wrote uh, one of the co-authors with Bernard Williams, um, Utilitarianism for and Against, and gave a copy to Peter Singer, who is a preference utilitarian, preference utilitarian. Um, and J.J.C. Smart said, he uh, effectively said, this sounds good, I think you're basically a right, right, but I still think there's something with the other view. But he never explained what that something was. <laughs> uh, too bad. And uh, um, Peter Singer pretty much just said, it's all been done before. But then my question is, if it's all done, been done before, why are you doing the other stuff? My problem with both of those cases is that none of them actually came back with, this is wrong because, mm-hmm. and then gave me an argument. Mm-hmm. And if they don't give me a reason to reject it, I have nothing to go on. Yeah. That's not helpful criticism. <laughs> right. You know, I think I came up to the problem um, that you were describing before, that all existing uh, ethical theories depend on a notion of intrinsic value. And I couldn't imagine a way to demonstrate that intrinsic values exist. Um, and so to have an ethical theory that does not depend on intrinsic values, um, you know, without that, I was pretty much doomed to subjectivism, strict, strict subjectivism. Nobody likes that, but I was willing to bite the bullet if there was, if there were no other options. Yeah, if you, if you fall into that trap where the only two options are intrinsic values and strict subjectivism, then that's really a problem. Yeah. Because intrinsic values, in fact, don't exist. And strict subjectivism does give you these really bizarre results, like um, one way to make uh, slavery perfectly legitimate is to like slavery. Mm-hmm. That's all it takes. I think that also desire utilitarianism would be a very important topic for atheists to understand, especially atheists who are interested in the debate with theists, um, because a very popular theist argument is that if you don't have God, if God does not exist, 
then you are you have no other option but moral nihilism basically um there there can't be any moral values in the world and um desire utilitarianism gives us an option to say no that's not necessarily the case um now the the other point to make there is that you can certainly argue against the position that God gives us an option for moral values by being at the use of the as we did before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think desire utilitarianism would be a very valuable concept for atheist debaters to understand, don't you think? Yeah, I have to admit that I, I tend to cringe when I read or hear um, key atheists such as Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris discuss ethics. Yeah. Because the, the criticisms... The theists give of, of their views of ethics are spot on. Like, for example, one of the things that the theists will claim with respect to the atheists trying to defend some uh, some alternative version of ethics is that, well, your intrinsic values are as mysterious as God. So you can't come up with all of these reasons why you need to reject God and yet ignore the fact that your your intrinsic values have the same problem. And in fact, I consider that a telling objection because there are no intrinsic values. Intrinsic values do have the same status as God. <laughs> and the atheist who defends intrinsic values ends up sounding like a theist defending God. They come up with all of these bogus arguments that that ultimately are easy to uh, to tear apart. Yeah, I always kind of cringe when I'm listening to a debate between a theist and an atheist and the atheists start to defend moral values um, because they just know they're not going to come up with a very satisfying response at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think desire utilitarianism really offers something uh, very new, surprisingly, shockingly new um, to the atheist who um, wants to defend the idea of morality outside of God. Yeah, that's one of the things I I haven't heard yet, and that I haven't participated in, which is a debate between a theist and an atheist, where the atheist defends a relational theory of value as opposed to a uh, what ultimately reduces to an intrinsic value, or a strict subjectivist theory of value. Mm-hmm. Both of which the theist already has a long list of, of knockdown arguments against both of those positions. Mm-hmm. And so I'd, I'd like to, to, to actually hear that debate between a, a theist and uh, uh, a desire utilitarian or a relational uh, ethicist. Well, now, Alonzo, I think uh, of all the people, I think you would probably be most qualified to carry out that debate. Uh, so feel free, feel free to oblige us sometime. Well, sure. <laughs> um, now, uh, the other thing I was thinking was that um, a lot of times, the atheist will, like I say, bite the bullet and just say to the theist, um, well, you're right, there aren't moral values in the world, and that might be too bad, that might make us feel yucky, um, but that's just the fact of the matter, and you can't say that, um, you, you certainly can't prove that moral values exist either. Um, but the problem, one problem with that is, even if it was intellectually sound, um, it's a huge point against the atheist in the debate because nobody listening wants to accept that. And so for purely emotional reasons, it's a real brutal blow to the atheist case to, to bite that bullet. There is the problem that you can't defend something because people want to believe this. It's true. That doesn't work. 
But, but look at the very argument that, that you just gave me. That is, the religious person comes up with a view, here is a morality, I've got a basis for it, and you atheists, you don't have a morality. And that causes the members of the audience to be fearful. Now, that fear itself is not reason for accepting one side or the other. <laughs> no. So let's look, take a step back. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of all of the harms that would come if there was no such thing as morality. So what they're afraid of, they're afraid of something that's real. I mean, it's, it's not just, I wish that this were true. It's that if the atheist is right and there is no morality, then people are going to, out there are going to put me at risk. I'm, I'm going to be harmed unless there is some way to say that the, these things are wrong. Now, the desire utilitarianism does have an answer. You have a reason to give people an aversion to doing things that would harm you, and they have a reason to give you an aversion to doing things that would harm them. Mm -hmm. So um, the fear, uh, it, it's not just that the members of the audience are or, or don't want to believe the atheist the atheist who says that there's no such thing as morality. The members of the audience are actually afraid of something, and what they're afraid of turns out to be something real, which is a world in which there is no aversion to doing things that are harmful to others. Mm-hmm. Now, that aversion, that very real aversion, gives them a reason to then create morality, to create a desire utilitarian system of morality to promote good desires and inhibit bad desires. So you, so you have an answer there, a, a real answer, which is other than, I don't like what the atheist is saying. Well, um, I see a problem in ethics in general where it seems like a lot of these moral theories, we judge them based on how much we happen to like the results of the theory, how much the theory matches the moral sense that we have within us. Uh, now, do you think that that's the best way to go about finding an ethical theory? For example, if we had been formulating our secular ethical theories during a time when racism was pretty much universal, which wouldn't be too long ago, um, we would be happy to formulate ethical theories and accept ethical theories that um, result in racism. Um, and in, in another 500 years, we may be at a totally different point in our uh, cultural and, and moral evolution. So um, do you think it's best to come up with a theory that is sound and actually matches objective reality? Or is it is it most important that that theory um, reflects our own moral sense? I don't like moral sense theories or what's, what's called intuitionist theories. The idea is that our intuitions or our moral sense pick, pick up moral value, and then we need a theory to explain whatever it is our sense is, is, is picking up. We don't have a moral sense. We have desires. We have likes and dislikes. None of that is, uh, is, is a moral sense. So um, in order to explain our likes and dislikes, we have a theory that does that, a theory of desires. What the intuitionist does is an intuitionist simply takes their desires and makes that the key pin of morality. In other words, it is really a subjectivist theory. It's a theory of, I like this, I was raised to like this by my culture or whatever, somehow I came to like this, and because I like this, or I like this with a particular type of moral feeling, then that must identify what's, what's good and bad. But it doesn't. Um, but you're, you're inventing something. 
thing that's real in your moral intuition is your desire. And a desire alone cannot defend a moral proposition. It's just simply not a valid argument to go from I, um, for example, I want Jenny to have sex with me to Jenny has an obligation to have sex with me. That type of inference, which is required in intuitionist theories, is unjustified. Any theory, by right, should fall apart as soon as you've got a false premise or an invalid inference. Desire utilitarianism is no different. As soon as somebody points out a false premise, it asserts something exists that it does that doesn't exist, or an invalid inference, it it derives a conclusion that that simply doesn't follow from the premises that it has set up. Then that would be a sound reason for to reject desire utilitarianism. Intuitionism or moral sense theories fails on that inference criteria. There is no inference from a desire a personal desire, I desire that P, to an obligation. A person's intuitions are simply their prejudices, and that's it. And if you create morality from intuition, the only thing you're doing is you're trying to rationalize your prejudice. Mm. And you end up with exactly what you were talking about. If a bunch of people with a prejudice against race invented morality from the moral sense theory perspective, they're simply going to come up with a theory that tries to justify their racism. Well, um, I must say that during the course of this interview, the value of desire utilitarianism to me has kind of shot through the roof. Um, and that very, very rarely happens. And uh, after this interview is over, I'm going to have to go to your website and actually buy your book, uh, Selected Essays on Desire Utilitarianism. Uh, Alonzo, uh, this has been very helpful, and I hope that people will listen to it uh, enough times to understand uh, everything in it and understand ethical theories and, and desire utilitarianism in general. Alonzo, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that was my interview with Alonzo Fife. I want to let you know I really did buy his book right after the interview was over, and then I popped caffeine pills all night long so that I could read uh, both his books, actually, about desire utilitarianism. See the show notes at commonsenseatheism.com for links to his books. And now it's time for... Ask the Atheist! The part of the show where I answer listener questions about atheism. Here's the question I'll answer today. Hi, this is Bob. My question is, as an atheist, have you ever felt really grateful about your life, but then not had anyone to thank, and isn't that kind of depressing? Thanks for the question, Bob. I really like this question because it totally surprised me. I'd honestly never thought about this before. I guess I don't feel a need to thank some person for all the good things in my life, although when there is somebody to thank, I do take pleasure in thanking them. But lots of good things in my life don't come from anyone else. They're just the way things are. It's like getting three green lights in a row when driving to work. I feel pretty happy about that, but I don't feel the need to stick my head out the window and yell thanks to somebody. But I'll bet there are lots of people who want to thank someone for everything in their life. We have a tendency to see agency in everything. Um, biologists think this might be because it had an evolutionary advantage. If a stick breaks in the forest while you're sleeping, you're better off if your mind has evolved to assume it was 
uh, maybe a dangerous animal and leap to attention than if you make the more likely assumption that it was nothing and you just go back to sleep. That may or may not be true about our evolutionary past, but however it happened, we do like to assume there is some kind of person or personal agent behind everything. We used to think gods and spirits were responsible for everything. Lightning, disease, crop failure, floods, childbirth, everything. It's taken a lot of evidence to convince us that these things are actually just caused by electrical charges and germs and stuff, instead of invisible persons. So I'll bet there are a lot of people who want there to be someone to thank when things go well for them. And perhaps some atheists think that it's depressing that they have nobody to thank. I don't feel that way, but maybe some do. But even if I did wish that there was somebody to thank for the good things in my life, that wouldn't change the fact that there just isn't. Uh, our universe could very well have been one in which a god was the source of everything. It just so happens that our universe is not that universe. So, I always try to embrace reality and make the best of it. And that's not too hard, because this world is pretty freaking awesome, if you ask me. Um, it's just full of wonder and beauty and possibility. So, for me, I guess the best answer to your question, Bob, is a quote from Douglas Adams, the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He said, Isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it, too? And that's how I feel about the universe. The universe is quite wonderful the way it is, even if somebody didn't create it just for me. So, that's how I feel about that. Thanks for your question, Bob. Listeners, to get your own question played and answered during the show, visit commonsenseatheism.com and click Ask the Atheist. Well, that's it for today's show. See you next time. Thank you.